Have your Bibles open it to Acts chapter 11. Acts 11. We'll read 1 through 17 to start off. The apostles and brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. The six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God. Verse 18, it says, When they had heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. We talked a little bit Sunday morning about what an extreme thing this was for the Jewish people to go into the house of a Gentile. How that was just... Not something you would do. It was unclean. Put into your mind whatever situation and scenario, going into a bar, going into just a place that is considered unclean, and going there and saying, how could you go to that place? That's the impression that it was to them. How could you go there? And so we have Peter rehearsing what he had talked about previously previously in chapter 9. It's interesting because that word for criticize there, that they criticized him in verse 2, is that they argued with him. They contended with him. They were not happy with it. They were basically rebuking him for what he did. How could you do such a thing? And then Peter goes on to explain what it is that he did, how God had ministered to him. And then we see again the same discourse that was in chapter 9, and we talked about how unusual it is for that to take place in Scripture because it wasn't a book that they wrote, it was a single scroll. And so for someone to write something on a scroll, 
space was limited. 30, 35 feet is about the longest you could have a scroll. That's pretty long. You think about writing something and you have to be rolling it up. And then 30, I don't know how big 35 feet a scroll would be, but it's pretty hefty. And so you try to be concise, write what's necessary. And they can't like, you know, copy, paste, you know, <laughs> over to the next place. You have to rewrite everything. And so Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, re-accounts, recounts, whatever that word is, he says it again, the entire story that he had just said a couple of chapters previously. Why? Well, because of how important it is. It's important for a few reasons. It's important because this is a huge step in opening the gospel to the rest of the world that Jesus talked about in the first chapter when they were to go to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, to the ends of the earth. This was that gateway to the ends of the earth. This is now where the gospel is just across the border and now is extending and is going to spread like wildfire. But there's something else that's important here in the message that Jesus himself gave to Peter when he was in that trance. When he saw these beasts... And he saw these creeping things, one translation says, and, and the fowls and all these things. And Peter says, I, I wouldn't eat anything that is unclean. And Jesus said, don't call unclean that what I have cleansed. And that is such an important thing to grab hold of and understand. Not only in response to others, but in response to ourselves as well. Because when God cleanses us, we are no longer unclean. When we have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. And it's important for us to recognize that and understand that. Oh, sure, you know, we, we might have been a beast and we might have been a creep and we might have been foul. Whatever those things are, we might have been those things. But if God has cleansed us, don't call it unclean. You are free in Christ. You are cleansed. Behold, I make all things new. You are a new creation in Christ. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. This is such an important truth. This is a foundational truth of Christianity. That when God cleanses, it's a done deal. Recently I was sharing with someone who is going through some very serious situations and in the conversation there was this, I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I've done enough. I don't know if something happens to me, if I will be able to, to meet the Lord because my life is not what it should be. And who could say their life is what it should be here? Who could raise their hand and say, oh yeah, well my life is what it should be. I, I, I'm there right now. I'm kind of hovering, you know, right at perfectness, you know. And <laughs> None of us can say that. <laughs> and 
And what I was able to share is, you know, all those fears and those inadequacies that are within you, those things that don't meet that record in your mind that you can't let go of, those things that you said, those things that you've done, those things that seem to knock on your memory and say, hey, remember me, remember me. Jesus took care of those. Jesus took care of those. You don't have to worry about that. Because you are now clean. What a, a powerful truth. How free that is. Because now I don't have to earn my way. I don't have to be proselytized into this religion to do certain things to make my way. Whatever it was, if I have confessed to my God, He is faithful and just to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1.9 says. Powerful truth. How many people are burdened with their past, are burdened with their inadequacies, are burdened with things they cannot let go of, or put burdens on others that they will not forgive them for. And they say that person is unclean. If they will respond to the message of Jesus Christ, then they are clean. And don't call unclean what God has cleansed. The Holy Spirit saw fit to repeat that for a reason. Because it's good for us to hear. Because God's mercy extends to the uttermost. He reaches to the pit. And we've got a lot of stories of people who were like that. I mean, boy, this is a book filled with misfits and homes that are just malfunctioned and, you know, boy. Look at David. Look at Noah. Look at Abraham. Look at Jacob. Take, take your pick. Look at them all. They're all pretty dysfunctional. And yet God's mercy is there. God's mercy is there. God's mercy is there. His mercy endures forever. And so the Holy Spirit repeats this thing. And I love how it says in verse 12 that the Spirit told me, have no hesitation about going with them. It means you need to go now. Don't hesitate. Don't think twice about it. Just do it. And oh, to have that kind of, I'm going to do it, Lord. I'm not going to hesitate. When God tells me or puts something on my heart, I'm going to do it. And we've talked about this. This is happening. This is a theme throughout the book of Acts. The spirit ministered. They did it. We saw Philip. Hey, go down there to Caesarea. Okay. Go talk to a unit. Okay. How, you know, if he would have missed it, if he would have waited just 10 minutes, he would have missed that opportunity. We see that when Peter got there in Acts chapter 9, Cornelius had the whole neighborhood, all his family waiting for him. Because he knew he's going to show up. What if Peter would have waited? Uh, let me think about this. I'm going to wait on this a little bit. I'm going to go you know, talk to some of the guys and see what they say. God told him, don't wait, go. And I have a feeling that God tells us that a lot of times, but we're scared. At least I get scared. God says, go. And I say, I can't go. I, I need to 
you know, make arrangements. I've got, you know, bills to pay, and I've got, you know, these things I have to think about. And we hesitate. God told him, don't hesitate, and he didn't. That's the great thing, is he didn't. You know, it would be great if I didn't, but I do many times. So anyway, they go forward, and we see that he was there. In verse 14, it says... He brought the message through which you and your whole household would be saved. The idea is he brought the salvation message there to them. They did respond. They received the Spirit just as God had done in the beginning when they were there in the upper room. And so they finally heard all these things and they said, you know, well, what can you say? If God did all those things, what are we going to do? Are we going to contend against God? Are we going to stop this? So they couldn't. When they heard this in verse 18... They had no further objections. And they praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance to life. Even the Gentiles. That's us. How does it make you feel to say, Even you guys have been granted repentance to life. Wow. And we see in chapter 15 that there is another council that takes place in Jerusalem to say, What are we going to do with all these Gentiles now? Because they're not following the Jewish laws. What do we tell them? What are they supposed to do? And so in chapter 15, this kind of gets revisited. Because this is going to be a big deal. It is a huge deal. In fact, it goes on. And it says in verse 19, Now, those who had been scattered by persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Okay, so we remember when Stephen was persecuted or was killed, when he was martyred, how the persecution sent everyone out. So these people went out to these regions, but they only took the message to the Jews. There were some people that were only going to go where they were comfortable in going, but it says in verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So some went, and they just went to their comfort zone, and then some went, and they began to also talk to the Greeks. No doubt, this story of what happened with Peter started spreading. We talked about that Last time, how in chapter 11 right here at the beginning, it says that the word preceded them. Peter hung out there for a few days with Cornelius. And the idea of, or the message of what had happened, this was kind of, wow, this is a big commotion, had gone before him. Well, no doubt this grapevine is still going. And people went back and said, Peter went to Cornelius and it's okay. He talked to this guy, a Gentile. And they received the Spirit just like the Jews did. So this other group said, well, then let's go to these places and let's start talking to them. And they did. The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And I love the phrasing, the good news about the Lord Jesus. That happens over and over throughout this book. The good news about the Lord Jesus. The good news about Jesus. The good news about Jesus. Are we giving people the good news about Jesus or what are we giving them? Is it good news or is it a burden? 
Is it something that lifts them and frees them? Is it good news to hear your sin is forgiven? You are set free. God loves you. He cares for you. He's listening for you. He desires to have that close-knit relationship with you. That's the good news of Jesus. God has made it available to you. That's the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they heard it and they responded. And as they respond, they believed and turned to the Lord. Now, okay, so these guys are going to these places. They're going to Cyprus, Cyrene, and they go to Antioch, and they're telling these people, and they're responding. Now, Antioch is kind of key because it's the third largest city next to Rome, Alexandria. Then there was Antioch. And Antioch was known for the goddess of Daphne and the worship of Daphne. Daphne was seduced by Apollo in Greek mythology, and so it was a very immoral society, much like Corinth was. So it's kind of like that Vegas attitude, you know, what happens in Vegas, you know, stays in Vegas, not, you know. But there was something that was very corrupt. But now, there's all these people believing in Jesus in Antioch. And the word gets back to Jerusalem. Hey, do you guys hear what's happening over there? So the word gets back to them. It reached, I love it, reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barney, go check it out, man. See what's happening over there. Okay, something's going on in Antioch. Yeah, Antioch. You mean where they worship Daphne? Yeah, Antioch. There's a bunch of people believing in Jesus down there. Why don't you go check it out? Because we got to send someone to see what's really going on there. And so Barnabas goes down there to Antioch. When he arrived, verse 23, and he saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. Oh, I love that. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. That is such a beautiful verse. When he arrived there, he saw evidence of the grace of God. What does that look like? Evidence of the grace of God. What comes to your mind when you think of evidence of the grace of God? What comes to my mind is me. What comes to my mind is people just like me who, who were not really anywhere that they should have been able to find God, but God found them. And God took them and, and changed them and is working in their life and is, is doing a, a tremendous thing within them. That's an evidence of the grace of God. And when he saw that, he was glad. Even these Antiochians or whatever they were called. <laughs> we talked about this in depth Sunday morning what it's like when you see someone who is doing well, who you don't care for. How it bugs you. Or it does me. You know, I don't care for that person. And then you find out something good's happened to them. It's like, why should good, anything good happen to them? What about me? And, and how Jesus warns us about those things. Well, Barnabas saw these Gentiles at Antioch saw the evidence of God's grace in their lives, and he was glad. He said, wow, this is neat. And then he encouraged them 
to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Not with all their minds, but with their hearts. That center of passion, that seat of the center of their life and their being. You know, our hearts are a lot different than our minds. Our hearts hang on to things a lot longer and more tenaciously than our minds do. Has anyone ever been in a relationship where they got dumped? (laughs) You don't have to admit it here. (laughs) This isn't dump anonymous. anonymous. (laughs) But we've all been in relationships, most of us, where someone has said, yeah, you know, dear John, here you go. I'm, I'm done with you. And in our minds, we're mad. We're furious. How could she? How could he? The nerve of that. But our hearts don't let go. It's a lot harder for our hearts to get over that hurt. Because our hearts hold on. So with our mind, we could say, oh, yeah, yeah. But then we go to bed and cry. Because our hearts don't let go so easy. And so Barnabas says, you need to... Remain true to the Lord with all your heart. You need to fall in love with Him. You need to grasp hold of Him. You need to allow Him to be just in the center of your being. Because times are going to come when your mind does not understand what's going on. There's going to be times where it's difficult to hold on to just that (laughs) truth of God is with me, but your heart won't let go. So even though... My flesh fails me. I know, I believe, I trust in you. I have hope because my heart holds on. And so he encourages them. He's glad. He sees the grace of God in their lives and he tells them, hold on. With all your hearts, remain true to the Lord. In other words, do those things that honor God with your heart. Let that sink deep in to the center of who you are so that that becomes your life. That becomes what you are used to. It's amazing how we become creatures of habit. We just get used to doing things. Every morning I get up and I go through a routine. I don't know which leg I put in first in my pants, but I I know I do the same thing every morning, I'm sure of it, if I were to think about it, but I just automatically do that. And our lives can become a routine. Well, are we including the Lord in that routine? Are we developing habits that include the Lord? Are are we getting up and and staying true to Him? Lord, I want to include you in my morning, so I'm going to pray to you. I'm going to call out to you. I'm going to Pick up the scriptures and I'm going to read them. I'm going to follow after you. I'm going to put away the things that are going to pull me away. And I'm going to lean towards the things that are going to draw me near. I'm going to stay true to you, Lord, with my heart. I'm going to develop habits that are good and healthy for me. And that's what he encouraged them to do. And verse 24 says, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. What a testimony. Boy. Wouldn't you love God to say that about you? You're a good man, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas 
went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Short verse. Verse 25, and this is about to change everything. This is seven to ten years from when we last heard about Saul. Long time has happened. Remember, they kicked him out and said, man, you're causing problems, get out of here. And so Saul left, and we haven't heard from him, and now about seven to ten years takes place, and Barnabas goes, I know a guy who would be perfect for this place. What's neat about this is that something great was happening here, and Barnabas says, I need help. I need someone else. He wasn't a one-man show. He didn't say, well, okay, yeah, I'm going to be known as, you know, Barnabas, pastor of, you know. It wasn't about him. It was about this message, the good news of Jesus Christ, reaching more people. And he said, I know a guy who is going to be just perfect for this. The guy's intelligent. He knows the scriptures. He understands this culture. And he can connect these people. And so he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, this is about 125 miles away with no cars. It's a long journey to get from where he's at to Tarsus. And then when it says he went to Tarsus to look, that word to look for Paul was to search. It's the same word that's used in Luke's gospel when Jesus' parents lost him. Remember, they left him in Jerusalem, they took off, and then they went, where's, have you seen Jesus? I thought you had him. No, oh no. And then they went and they looked frantic. So think of a parent frantically looking for their child. Have you ever lost your kids? You don't have to admit it. But one time when Corrine lost the kids, uh, <laughs> we were at Disneyland, and actually we... We didn't lose them. He left. He, he ran off on his own. And where was he? Well, we're frantically looking for him. I mean, we're in Disneyland. Oh, my gosh. You hear all the horror stories. He's been kidnapped. We know it, you know. No. Finally, we find him in line, you know, one of the rides, sitting there like nothing's going on. He's just, I'm going to go on a ride, you know. What are you doing? I'm going on a ride. What do you think? I'm at Disneyland. What's wrong with you? Frantically looking for him. That's the picture of Barnabas looking for Saul. He goes to Tarsus and he's got, i got to find Saul. Where is he? And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, it's interesting here because back in verse 20, it says that some of them, these men who went and started to go to Antioch, they began to speak. And that word to speak is to preach, to, to herald. They kind of preach this good news about Jesus Christ. But here later on, we see that they began to teach them. And so first there's this preaching of presenting the, the message, and now there's instruction into what that means and development of life. And that's what we try and do. We try and herald this good news about Jesus, but then we, we come here and we start looking at the Scripture and we start teaching about what that means, about what God requires, what God 
is pleased with about the things that we need to live our lives to honor God and things that will be helpful in this relationship that we have with the Lord. And so there's the heralding of the message, and then there is the teaching of what it means. And so now, for a whole year, Paul and Barnabas are together teaching a great number of people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Christians, they wouldn't call them Christians in Jerusalem because the idea of Christ is Messiah, and the Jewish people would not call them in this name because they felt it was not honorable. They would call them Nazarenes. They call them those on the way. But here in Antioch, they are called Christians, and it means little Christs. What I think is neat is they didn't call themselves Christians. They were called that by other people. Because who here would say, I'm a little Christ. I'm a little Christ. It wasn't something they talked about. But today, things have changed, haven't they? Now we're the ones who present people. Oh, I'm a Christian. Think about that. I'm a little Christ. Really? Are you? And I think it's neat that they were called that and they didn't call themselves that. In Antioch, they were called Christians. Look at those. And that means that it got so big that they had to find a name for them. So many of them developed that they had a name. It's kind of like music. You know, if music, a certain genre, becomes popular, you got to label it because, you know, what is it? It's punk. It's, you know, whatever it is. It becomes something so popular, we got to label it so that we can identify what's going on here. So they had gotten so many of them that they labeled them. Hey, have you seen all those? What are those people? They're like, they're like Christ. Yeah, they're, they're Christians. And so they're labeled there in Antioch. And during that time, verse 27, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius, just to give you a little time frame that, yeah, this really happened. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, what I love about this, this whole discourse from verse 19 to the end of this chapter, is we see the heralding of the good news of Jesus Christ. We see the teaching and developing disciples. And then we see the continuing reality of interaction with God through the prophet. In other words, there is the proclaiming, there is the teaching, but there is still this revelation that comes from God to the people about what is happening. And so it's not a ministry that is just about teaching. It's not just instruction. It's a a living ministry that's taking place where God is still speaking to the people. And then when this warning comes about the famine that's going to be taking place, the whole Roman world there, what do they do? They don't store up the food, buy guns, and camp out. This isn't Y2K. We're going to you know, go up to the mountains and we're going to hang tight until this famine is over, and then we'll come down from the mountains. Their first reaction is, well, let's help those that are in need. 
What a great response. What's our response when we hear someone's in need? How do we feel when we hear that news? Are we quick to go out or do we just kind of take it in and we want to make sure we're taken care of? Because they went and gave to Judea. Now, it's interesting that they gave towards the, the church in Judea because remember when the church first began, a lot of people were there during that time of Pentecost and they hung out there for a long time and people sold their land and they gave so that people could have their needs met and the church was very generous and now that's the area that's in need. So they gave and they gave and now they're in need and now here comes the church in Antioch that gives and helps supplies those things. What a neat thing that God did. And helping those that were generous at the beginning, now others are generous towards them and help them out. And so what a, a neat response to the famine that was there. It wasn't, you know, let's hoard up food for ourselves and we're going to load our guns and you come near us, we're going to kill you. I, I heard studies like that on the Y2K about, you know, you need to go up and you need to take care of these things. It's like, what are you going to do if someone comes tries to get your food? Are you going to shoot them? You're Christian. You know, you can't do that. There was such, anyway, ah, that bothered me, as you might be able to tell. Anyway, so those things took place, and they gave these gifts to Barnabas and Saul, and they went back to Judea. Um, gosh, let's see. I think we can cover this. Chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and after arresting him, he put him into prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Then Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, there's a lot of Herods that take place in the Bible. Uh, this is not Herod the Great that we saw at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. This is Herod Agrippa I. In a couple of chapters, we're going to read about Herod Agrippa II. doesn't really matter. But there's a lot of Herods, just if you're wondering. And this Herod was actually a descendant of Esau. And he followed the Jewish traditions, and he wanted to be involved with the Jews, but he was kind of a half-breed, so the Jews never accepted him. He married a Jewish woman, and that was part of his trying to identify with the Jewish people. Again, he wasn't accepted. But now when he kills James, the brother of John, he saw that it pleased the Jews, and so he thought, oh, good, I'm on their good side. Let me get Peter also. So he seizes Peter, and he takes them in. He's got four squads, four soldiers each, which is a lot. It's kind of like usually they only need two, but he's going to make this uh, production. So he's arresting Peter. Peter's got to be a huge name by now. Miracles have been done by him. He is kind of seen as being the spearhead of this Christian movement. So Peter is the man right now in that sense. He is someone who is identified with, well, if he gets Peter, this is a big deal. This will really be a brownie point or button or whatever that brownie thing is that you get. He will be someone who will be, ah, oh, you got Peter. Good job, Herod. It will make him in good. So 
Peter was kept in prison, but the church earnestly was praying to God for him. Verse 5 is an important verse because it precedes what's going to be happening in the account, and it's not there by accident. Verse 6, it says, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. You know what's funny? It's Peter is seen sleeping a lot in Scripture. <laughs> It is. It's kind of curious. You know, Mount Transfiguration, he was asleep. And then he woke up and goes, whoa, okay, we should do something. You know, he kind of said something stupid like you do when you just wake up. Have you ever done that? You woke up and you're on the phone. Hi, are you sleeping? No, I was just, you know, cooking some coffee. You know, you just, you you don't say things quite properly because you're not quite awake. Well, Peter's always seen in that way. The garden, he was seen sleeping. Here, he's seen sleeping. Anyway, just kind of funny. At least I thought so. He was sleeping between these two soldiers. And then verse 7, or verse 6, the night before Herod was going to bring him to trial, he was sleeping between two soldiers, bound in two chains. Sentries stood guard at the entrance. And then verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. (laughs) I love this. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. It might say poked in the King James. He poked him. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrist. You know what else is interesting? Angels are always seen as in a hurry. I think that's kind of funny. You know, they're always saying, hey, come on, we've got to get something done. I don't, I don't know why, but they're always seen as in a hurry. Peter's asleep. They're in a hurry. And so he, he pokes him in the side. It's like, get up, get up. And they, you know, it's kind of quick. Get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. It's like Jedi status right here. And they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent an angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. It's like... And the bulb comes on, you know, and you just part of you wants to just say, oh, now I know what's going on. (laughs) He's just like, and I mean, I say that tongue in cheek, because if I was in that situation, I'd probably be like, what's going on? I mean, he was asleep. He wakes up and now he's in the street and then the angel is gone. It's like, oh, man, what just happened to me? And there's that realization of what had happened. In verse 12, it says, when the hand... When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked out, knocked, knocked, excuse me, at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her, when she kept insisting that it was so. They said, it must be his angel. And they still didn't get up. Okay, oh, it's his angel at the door. I still want to get up and see. And so they probably just didn't believe her. You're out of your mind. And what were they doing? They were praying for Peter. 
Peter's at the door. <laughs> no, we're praying for him. Men of faith here. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him. They were astonished, and Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. And he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, the brothers, about this. This is James, the the stepbrother, if you would, of Jesus, who would later become the head leader or elder in Jerusalem for the church. And he said, and they... And then he left for another place. He had to get out of there. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had made a thorough search and made for him, he did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and ordered that that they be executed. And so uh, a powerful thing that took place here with Peter's escape from jail. And what a, a, a neat thing. There's a lot of things that you wonder about this story. I wonder, first of all, what would happen if they were not praying? Because it seems to be the prelude to what happened. The church was praying for him. What would happen if they weren't praying? We don't know. We don't see any mention of prayer for James, and he was killed earlier. Interesting. What would happen? What happens when we don't pray? We don't know. We don't know how much we neglect or fail to see take place because we neglect prayer. What would have happened if Peter didn't get up and go? What if he would have stayed asleep and didn't take that opportunity and left the jail? He'd probably be dead. There's opportunities that God opens a door that we need to get up and walk through. Otherwise, we miss that opportunity. And when this opportunity came before Peter, he stepped through. He made that step and said, okay, I'm going to go through this door. So many times we are paralyzed and don't move through the doors that God opens because of fear. We wonder, I don't know if I should do that. What if I do that? What if this happens? I don't know. And we sit and stay imprisoned because of fear. When God opens a door, the chains have fallen. You can go now. And we stay in that same place just because of fear. I won't have any friends, God. If I do that, what am I going to, you know, no one will talk to me. If I do that, it's going to put me in a financial pinch. If I do that, God, it's going to affect me in this way. And so instead of walking through that door that God has opened, we stay enchained with the fears that we hold on to. And we forfeit the freedom that God affords us and live in bondage because of fear and a paralysis to move in the things that God has opened for us. What a tragedy that would be. What a tragedy. And again, what would have happened? Well, we don't know. And then we see the story of them praying for him. And when he's at the door, they don't believe it. That's comforting to me. Because sometimes I'm not that full of faith. Peter's at the door. No, he can't be. We're praying for him to get out of prison. I mean, like... And I love that she just ran and left him at the door. Hey! <laughs> she didn't open the... Peter kept knocking. I mean, it's just a comical scene, but it's so true to us. It's so true to us. So the name 
Rhoda means Rose. I just think that's neat. And I think, Rhoda, Rhoda, you're a blooming idiot. He's not at the door. <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. They can't get their minds around that God did something miraculous. We're praying for Peter, but God still heard their prayer, even though they didn't believe. Isn't that nice that God hears us even when we lack faith? God did more than they were anticipating. It makes you wonder, what were they praying? You know, maybe they weren't praying for him to get out, just, you know, that he would die a quick death. I mean, who knows what they were praying. God, you know, just help Peter to just be comforted there in his jail cell to trust in you. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they were praying, God, get him out of there. And they just didn't know it would be so miraculously. There's no doubt that we limit God. Because he's limitless. He can do anything. You know, I, I get convicted because sometimes I'm afraid to pray. Faithful prayers or prayers filled with pray, faith. Because what if? You know, Cynthia with her cancer. Well, God, use the doctors. no. God, just heal her. Bypass the doctors. Just strengthen her body. Revive her. Just do something miraculous, God. And I don't want to be a person who, well, I don't want to pray that in front of her because what if, you know, I lead her to believe... I can trust God for those things. I want to pray and be faithful. And I love that they were earnestly praying to God for him. Earnestly. It means consistently. It means fervently. It means they were devoted to it. And we need to be devoted to pray for those who are in need. You know, and Cynthia is one who comes to mind because of the depth of the physical need that she's going through. But there's others. In this room, you guys have needs. We need to be earnest in praying for those things. God is faithful. He can hear. He can heal. He desires to work wonders. And so we need to be consistent. And so what, what a beautiful story because of the humanity of it. Because in a sense, the comedy of it. But what a beautiful story because of the, the truth of a God who who cares and works in spite of it all. You know, and what a great God we have that he's able to work in these things. May we just be diligent, just like Barnabas was to seek after Saul. May we be diligent to find those people that God can use in circumstances. Be diligent to pray. Be diligent to have a heart that is just given over to God that we would love him just with all of our hearts. Uh, let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us in our weaknesses. Father, that we would remain true to you with our hearts. Father, that we would be as gracious as Peter was to Cornelius and as Barnabas was to those at Antioch and to Saul. Father, that we would be earnest to pray for the needs that 
we are aware of. That we would be believe enough in you, God, to not limit what you can do. Father, you did something miraculous here, and you're no different. But Lord, I know that I am doubtful. I know that my mind limits you and the things that you can do. And Father, help us not to do that. Help us to believe in you. And Lord, we do pray that you would do the miraculous. Even now, as Cynthia is in our, our hearts and minds, Lord, we do pray that you would do the miraculous. Lord, we pray that you would heal her teeth that need to be taken care of before she can even go to the doctors and deal with the cancer. And Lord, heal her cancer. Lord, that she would not have it any longer. Give her strength. Revive her body. Do what no medicine, what no doctor can do. Do what you do. You are the God of all flesh. Nothing is too difficult for you. Lord, we pray you heal her and be glorified in her life. And I lift up the needs that are here and the, the needs that are, are present just with this body of believers at Genesis, Lord. The financial needs, the physical needs, the emotional needs, the family needs. Lord, we lift these things to you. And God, I, I do pray that you would help us to earnestly pray. Even as I was convicted about this this week, Lord, um, Lord, raise this up in our fellowship as we are gathering here Wednesdays to pray. Lord, show us what else we can do, God, to pray for the needs that are here. Lord, lead us in this way. Do thank you again for your faithfulness, your goodness, Lord. I do ask that you continue to work in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name.